and welcome to the Speaking Out podcast from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our goal is to highlight our programs and the amazing work that they're doing around the state, provide discussion around the topics of domestic violence, and create an environment of education and empowerment for anyone that may be experiencing domestic violence. This week, we are spotlighting one of our new staff members. Please welcome Mary Ellen Garcia, our new Director of Policy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mary Ellen. I'm so excited to talk to you and to have you as a new staff member here at the Coalition. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at NMCADV? Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm incredibly excited to be part of the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence team. I really feel like it's full circle for me. I really came into this work by being introduced to domestic and intimate partner violence through the coalition over 20 years ago. And so I started in this work as an undergrad, really wanting to understand the nature of intimate partner violence. At the time, I didn't call it intimate partner violence. It was domestic violence. We didn't have other terminology for it over 20 years ago. And I really wanted to understand why people harm people that they love. That's where it really all came from for me. And I have been just blessed in my career. I have had the opportunity to work at an organization called Resources Inc., which has now evolved into Domestic Violence Resource Center. Under the leadership at the time of that agency, it really started the evolution of my career in probably the most powerful way. I remember being a volunteer and at the time Enlace Comunitario was beginning under the leadership of then Claudia Medina. And I remember to this day her coming to visit the agency that I worked for, Resources Inc. And you want to talk about survivor-centered services That's where it came from for me, was a maybe five-minute conversation with a woman who I have been blessed to witness how you provide services to survivors. And it really was that conversation with her about meeting survivors where they're at and understanding. And we didn't call it survivor-centered then. We didn't call it trauma-informed then. But that's what it was. The core of everything that in my professional career started with was survivor-centered services, meeting survivors where they're at. So a little bit about myself. I worked there for many years. Then I assisted the Albuquerque Police Department in creating a crisis unit, a civilian-based crisis unit to help families who had loved ones experiencing severe mental health issues and access to services really in a time recognizing about 15 years ago the impact of mental health in our communities. And then I was able to move on and do some consulting work for a significant part of my career, doing some statewide and national policy work on orders of protection and issuance and access to orders of protection, working with some amazing colleagues here in the state of New Mexico, who really kind of helped set some of the foundations for what many of our providers do still to this day. And then to move on to my most recent career was at the Crime Victims Reparation Commission. 
in the capacity of the Bureau Chief there, administering our state and federal funds for survivor services across all victimizations, not just intimate partner violence, but child abuse and sexual abuse and sexual violence, sexual violence across the lifespan. And that really allowed myself to participate with some phenomenal national leadership around technical assistance, such as the Vera Institute, the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence, the Women of Color Network, and really being able to leverage a lot of what is happening on the national level and bring those resources here to New Mexico and to see us as a state expand on how we administer funding to our service providers and really move away from this scarcity model of funding into really thinking about what we need to be adequately resourced. And I know we're moving into times where funding is going to become more scarce. And I am hopeful in my new position here at the coalition as the director of policy that I can help us continue to operate in a way in which we think about the needs of survivors and those who are providing them services, those who are providing them services that we don't always consider survivor services, but they're doing the work and bringing them into the fold and really thinking about continuing to have the mindset of we provide services to survivors and this is what it takes to be adequately resourced to do so. And we are not going to go backwards and operate in scarcity model and a scarcity mindset, but we are going to continue to raise voice around the needs of our survivors and expect nothing less than being adequately resourced by our communities, whether that be our state or our federal government, ensuring that we have the resources necessary to ensure that survivors of all crimes, but particularly here, survivors of intimate partner violence, have the resources necessary to live in homes that they are not afraid of and fearful of. And I think that if we could keep that at our core mission, in my professional career, I'm going to continue where I started over 20 years ago, thinking about the vein of, I am here to provide services in whatever capacity, whether that be direct services, through funding, through policy, through my voice, to ensure that we are meeting survivors where they are at with the needs that they are asking for. Not what we think they're asking for, but what they themselves are asking for and need. That was a long-winded response to your question. Is that what you wanted? Give it all to me, yeah. Give it all, right? (laughs) This is a great opportunity to now say your position is Director of Policy. So can you explain a little bit about what it is that you'll be doing for the coalition and how you're going to be interacting with our programs and the rest of the state in that capacity? I think that this is probably one of the most exciting times to take on a role of this nature, both personally and professionally for myself, but the landscape of where we are as a state. I think some of the most important things that I hope to be able to leverage for our service providers, our membership, our survivors is bringing all of the conversations that we have around changes needed and bringing a voice to action behind those conversations. Our providers are doing some phenomenal work, but they are still continuing to wear three, four, five, six different hats. You have executive directors who are also the clinical directors who are also HR managers and the need and recognition for changes in our communities. 
looking at particular communities, for example, Bernalillo County or Doña Ana County or all the other 33 counties that we have or communities and saying what one of the things is looking at the landscape of services in those communities. Are we adequately resourced? It goes back for me, this conversation around underserved, unserved, and inadequately served communities, right? We have significant parts of our state that are completely unserved. We have 33 counties, which a major percentage of them are considered frontier communities. The U.S. Census Bureau considers them frontier communities. Access to transportation, access to water, access to resources is the top of the conversation, let alone having conversations around violence that's happening in our homes. And so one of the things that I'd like to do is bring awareness to unserved communities, bring awareness to communities that are underserved, meaning culturally specific communities, ethnically specific communities, and then looking at communities that are inadequately served, right? Organizations who are not able to meet the needs of the community it's serving. And is that related to funding? Is that related to being inadequately resourced? Human capital. It takes a significant number of people who are trained and have the capacity to take on this incredibly vital work, which comes with its own level of vicarious trauma that we absorb. And so how do we adequately resource our communities going into communities and looking and seeing where they're at and bringing voice to those communities and the leadership within those communities to work towards adequately resourcing them. I also want to bring voice to the changes that need to occur. There's some legislative initiatives that are coming up. We were talking with our membership today about some of the household member crimes and the loopholes in which offenders are able to get away with not participating in battering intervention programs because you can plead to another household member crime and not be mandated to participate. And uplifting the voice of, let's fix that loophole, but also uplifting the voice of why that's important on not just in that moment, but long-term and the impact on reducing violence within our homes and communities. And so really taking what the membership recognizes as policy changes and bringing action. I think that would be the most important part of my job now is to bring action to those items. What is something that you're really proud of or excited about that we're doing right now with NMCADB? Wow, what am I excited about with NMCADV? I am incredibly excited to see the impact of the coordinated community response. One of the things that I really recognized many years ago in my career was the impact of a community's response in addressing violence of any kind, but addressing an issue is a community's response. And I believe that if we as a state uphold our providers and their ability to leverage the partnerships and relationships, right? And give our providers the tools necessary, the human capital necessary, the skills necessary to leverage those relationships to foster change in each community. We're going to see what many other states 
would only wish that they could do, right? To see really powerful change in communities addressing a crime that permeates everything that we do. And so I'm excited to see the impact of the CCR work. I really believe that is going to shine an incredibly bright light on many policy changes that need to happen in our communities, many legislative changes that need to happen in our communities. It's going to help our providers hold our leadership in communities on community level and on a state level accountable, hold them accountable to ensuring that our families are safe. I love that. It is such an exciting movement that we're doing. I think almost all of us as staff are just super excited about how this is going to get going. So do you feel like you've already answered what part of the work you're most passionate about? What am I most passionate about? I think for me, I am incredibly passionate about this work and the movement of this work and to see the evolution of where we've come. To stand beside and on the shoulders of a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, she calls a lot of us old buffaloes those who've been doing the movement. And she's been doing the movement for over 40 years. So you have that group of advocates who, and I use the term advocate, but they're executive directors and they're leaders and they're movement makers. But at the core, we're all advocates, right? At the core of who we are, it's this passion, this advocacy that that drives us. You know, so you have, have the old buffaloes and some of us who've been doing it for over 20 years. So you have this institutional knowledge. And I think what I am most passionate about now is to bring in young leadership into this movement and their voice to really force all of us to shake the tree a little, to question that is why we did it 30 years ago, but why are we doing it now? And to create space for that and to have those conversations, I think is incredibly important to continue to ask ourselves, why are we doing it this way? Why have we done it this way? Is there a better way? And how do we keep the movement moving forward so that it's relevant and it's not this stagnant conversation of, oh, they've been talking about that for 20, 30, 40 years. It continues to be an issue to this day. And the voices across generations are incredibly important, right? To hear those voices across so many generations speaking so passionately about the same conversation and to continue to bring light to that. I think that's what I'm most passionate about is bringing light to this issue that nobody wants to talk about, right? Nobody wants to talk about something, but for the grace of God, go I, right? You hear people make that statement or whatever statement similar to that. And it's a conversation of, you don't realize it, but it's impacted your life. You can't get through this life being unscathed with this type of violence in our families. And if you really think about it, for me, it's always been this conversation around nobody enters a relationship of any kind, whether it be a friendship or an intimate relationship or even an employment relationship, right? You don't enter a relationship expecting that whomever you're entering that relationship with 
will harm you in any way. There's this innate belief, hopefully, for many of us, that's going to make you a better person, right? You take a job for whatever reason, to become a better person, to further your professional career. You enter into a relationship hoping that your partner will help you grow in who you are and not belittle you and break you down. And so nobody wants to talk about those relationships. And I think it's important that we do, that we teach our children that it's not okay and that it is okay to bring voice to it and to say, this is unacceptable. If we're able to teach them at such a young age, and it's just part of their belief system, power differentials are unacceptable. And using power over somebody else to manipulate them to do your will is unacceptable at any level. And to watch children, even on the playground, who are being brought up in that vein of, it is unacceptable. Consent is something I'm always going to ask for. Consent is something that is going to be asked of me to have the conversation around consent. And but to watch our young people really just that becomes part of their belief system. And that's what I want to change, right? I want to see this generation expect to be asked for consent, expect to be treated well in a relationship, expect to treat the other person well in a relationship and for that to be just the normal part of the conversation for unhealthy relationships to be abnormal that's oh could you imagine the world we would live in if you could make one change for survivors in new mexico what would that change be just one change for survivors i know i'm so cool i know if i could only do one thing i would remove the shame and stigma. If I could impact society's ability to remove the shame and stigma associated with being a victim, we have to, as a society, we feel this need to label something, right? To label, we can't just allow people to call it what they choose to, which I think is also another problem. But you said only one. (laughs) If We as society could come to a place in which there is no shame and stigma associated with being in a relationship that was unhealthy, was abusive. And the ability for a survivor to feel the ability to reach out to services without societal shame, familial shame, work shame, and then the own internal shame that we just feel ourselves. If we could remove that stigma, and I think we would be in a place in which survivors would seek help more quickly and would be able to move through their trauma and towards resiliency more quickly. And so I wish that's something we could do on a societal level. And I think it really starts with our young people, right? Teaching our children that it's okay to speak up and speak out. And that it's not okay to be treated in those ways and to give voice to that. So now if you could make any one change for programs in New Mexico, what would that be? One change for programs in New Mexico. I would love to see our programs throw out the job descriptions. And what I mean by that is I think we have come to a point where we have siloed ourselves in titles 
case manager, victim advocate, director of this, fill in the blank, right? And it's taken away from that core term advocate, right? What it means to advocate for a survivor. And we hear stories all over the state where survivors are on a waiting list for even crisis intervention because there's not an advocate available, only a case manager is available. And so I would love to see providers really throw out the job title, throw out the job description, and go back to the core mission. I'd love for our providers to have the opportunity. And there's not always the time and opportunity because we're dealing with people in crisis and you can't shut down crisis work in order to always do this really powerful, almost strategic planning work in an organization. But to take a moment to pause and go back to the agency's core mission and values and think about why the agency developed in that community what the community is asking for. Because the complexities of survivors has grown exponentially. 30 years ago, getting somebody out and putting them in a home and then getting them into their own place was different than it is today. You have survivors who have children who are experiencing generational traumas, right? Intergenerational traumas. You've got the complexities of co-occurring issues with child sexual abuse, you've got homelessness, you've got violence in our communities just happening, just violence, let alone the violence happening within their homes. And I think that we have siloed ourselves into, I am a case manager, I am a crisis advocate, I am a shelter advocate, and that is all I do. That is my lane and I stay in it. And I think the complexity of what survivors need really requires us to think outside of our job descriptions. And so I would love to see advocacy go back to the mission. I'm looking at it from this macro perspective of having this 20-year span looking at the infrastructure of services across the state, across all victimizations, right? And recognizing and hearing so many stories of survivors who are trying to seek services in communities who aren't being met where they're at because that's not my job. And it's not just our community-based providers, our district attorney victim advocates, our law enforcement victim advocates are kind of all in that same space. And if we were to kind of take a step back and meet a survivor where they're at the moment they seek our services, and not say, that's outside of my scope, right? But to really say, all right, this is your crisis, and you are the expert in your crisis. And my job, and my only job, is to help you through this so that you can get to a point in your life where you are able to live violence-free and become resilient from what you've experienced. And Just like we develop programming based upon funding. No, no, no. Do not develop programming based upon funding. Develop programming based upon the needs of the survivors in your community. Then you tell the funders what you need. We've got it backwards. And this is coming from a previous funder, right? Don't tell me what you think I want to hear as a funder, right? Tell me what you need because you are the expert in your community 
and the survivors that you're serving. And you're hearing from the experts, those who are seeking your services. It's as simple as that. And when we get to that core, then we build in the CCR work that we're doing. Can you imagine the change that can come from all of that? Mind-blowing, right? So my next question is, if you had to choose one aspect of domestic violence awareness to highlight, what would it be and why? If I had to pick one, it would be that intimate partner violence impacts and touches every aspect of our society in one way or another. And to bring and raise awareness to that fact. I think many policymakers, leaders in our communities, those who are running our governments and our societies don't recognize how intimate partner and domestic violence affects everything. We think about our schools and early education, right? We think about our children. We want children to learn how to write their names and spell and how to behave and how to sit at a desk for an hour at a time before recess. But for example, you expect a child to sit in class and to pay attention and to learn and read and write when in their very developmental phase, they're thinking about what happened last night with their father and their mother, right? Or mom has gotten them in a safe place, but they know because children see everything. Mom is worried about how she's going to pay the bills and how she's going to put food on the table. And children become deeply aware of what's happening. So how can you expect a child to deal with all of that yet learn how to read and write and pay attention and not act out? And so I think if we could recognize that it just impacts everything. It impacts our physical health. When individuals are going to the doctor and you have that question, right? The question, do you feel safe in your home? First of all, stop asking that when the partner's in the room. Just seriously, seriously stop asking when the partner's in the room. That was not the intent of the legislation. I was around when that legislation was written. Getting to the root of what's happening in your home, thinking about in our jobs, People who are distracted, oh, they're just a horrible employee. And really not thinking about what's going on in our homes because it impacts everything, right? It impacts our jobs, our careers, our physical health, our mental health, our ability to pay our bills. It touches every single aspect of our lives. Now, I would love to know how do you take care of yourself? What are some self care things that you do? Self care. I have to tell you, when you've been doing this work so long, I think the voice that the current and future movement makers and shakers around taking care of ourselves and self-care, what they have brought to recognizing the importance of that is just one of the most powerful things I've seen. I have spent the last year and a half really trying to figure out how to do that in a different way. And so let me tell you the things I used to do that I will be bringing to 2023. I used to go to the gym all the time. I was a swimmer and I love to lift. And so 2023 is bringing those things back for me and factoring in those self-care and wellness moments. So I will be swimming again, which I am excited about. So that is one thing I will be reading again. 
And reading outside of, I read all the time. I have read so many super circulars and DOJ press releases, and I can tell you everything that's happening in the movement. But to read a book about fiction, right, is a lovely thing. So I will be bringing those things in. But I think the one thing that I do and have consistently done for self-care, and I never really realized that it was self-care until I took a moment to pause, was my personal faith. My husband brought me back to faith when I met him 15 years ago. Our second date was to go to Mass, and I hadn't been to Mass or church in probably at that time about 10 years. So to go to Mass is where I sit and where I take care of myself and my soul and my children. And so my self-care is making sure that I'm deeply rooted in myself and my faith and my children's faith and watching them. So I'm a baseball mom. And any baseball, soccer, sports mom out there who's listening to this is going to say taking kids to sports is not self-care because it is exhausting. But there is a level of it that is self-care because you just get to watch this thing that you helped create and you're watching them evolve. I've got two. I've got a 28-year-old bonus, beautiful, amazing daughter and a son-in-law. And they're bodybuilders and to watch their passion, right? And that gives me joy and that fills my soul. And then I got my tiny human. He's 11 and he loves his baseball and basketball and soccer, but baseball's number one. Oh, and archery. We added archery these last two years. My vehicle can do many things. Ball, basketball, soccer, archery. And my computer bag can run a conference for up to 300 people. So I'm prepared for all things. I don't know if I answered the self-care question other than I'm really bad at it, but I'm working on it. And that's one of the reasons I decided to take a step back from my prior position and come here is to singularly focus on policy change and to take 20 plus years of passion and work and to be able to bring that voice to making impactful changes in the communities that you all are serving. Beautiful, I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and for allowing us all the opportunity to get to know you a little better. We're so excited to have you. Absolutely, I'm excited to be here. This is gonna be, this is gonna be fun. Yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you so much. We want to thank our programs that work tirelessly across the state to support those affected by domestic violence. Each and every staff member, advocate, therapist, and supporter is important. We appreciate you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. Please call the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website on a safe device at www.thehotline.org. Love our conversations? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can submit questions and feedback to rochelle at nmcadv.org. Thanks for listening in.